everybody. Welcome back to the show, Science Facts and Fallacies, episode 248. I'm Cameron English. That's Dr. Liza Dunn. We're here to talk about some science. Very excited to be back. Liza, how was your holiday, New Year, Christmas festivities? It was a whirlwind. We've been very, very, very busy. Lots and lots and lots of parties. I need to take a nap. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I find that the parties are great. The free time is great. But after, I don't know, it's like four and a half, five days, I start to go stir crazy and I have to find something to get involved in yes. or I, or I start to go like, some, you know, <laughs> maybe it may be my ADHD, but yes, I agree with you. Yeah, <laughs> it's I get, like I, squirrel. Yes. Squirrel. Yeah. I get jittery. I get jittery. It's like, I can't watch Netflix anymore. I can't drink anymore. Like I need to find a big book and just like, <laughs> you know, some, something anyways, we're glad to be back. I'm glad to have some semblance of routine and talk about uh, some cool stuff. We're going to do something a little different today. We're going to focus on uh, one story, and uh, it's our it's about our favorite topic, which, of course, is pesticides and uh, chemical safety. It's always in the news. There's a new round of scares going around, and one of them has to do with uh, another herbicide besides glyphosate. I've uh, Since, like, 2018, at least once a week, I've talked about glyphosate. <laughs> so <laughs> I'm kind of grateful we get to talk about another one, but I'm also frustrated because it's going to be the same sort of... Uh, same sort Story. of story. Yeah, yeah. But let me let me jump into it here. So uh, last week, or I guess a little over a week now, I wrote a story for the American Council on Science and Health about how activist groups try to scare people about pesticides. And there's like there's a well-worn formula they follow, and one of the key elements of this plan is to recruit a scientist to recruit a government official who's going to give you the inside scoop. Like, you know, what the government doesn't really want you to know or what the pesticide industry doesn't really want you to know, right? And there's there's secret documents involved. It's really scandalous, right? It sounds like, you know, a, a new version of the tobacco industry. And that's exactly what they're going for. So that's what I'm talking about in the story. It's just a real world example of that. So um, I was on Twitter, as I shouldn't have been doom scrolling, and I came across a story <laughs> by our old friend, Kerry Gillum who was used to be a journalist at Reuters and is now a full-time uh, anti-pesticide, anti-chemical activist. And she had written a story for The Guardian, and the headline was something to the effect of e- retired EPA scientist says that people that work there are afraid to speak because the, because the chemical industry has basically captured the EPA. So I saw the headline, I was like, all right, I'm bored. Here's my project, right? I'm going <laughs> to... Here's my... <laughs> Here's my holiday uh, exercise. So I went in and, and looked at it, and uh, we'll get into the specifics, but she's talking about a uh, an, herb, an herbicide or weed killer called Paraclot, and Liza can explain the chemistry behind this, but um, it, it works very well, and it's safe when you use it based on the label instructions that the EPA issues after it registers a pesticide. Now, and this is important. You should never drink it. <laughs> no. Really, really bad for you. You'll have a terrible day if you drink yes. Paraquat, okay? Don't drink it. Don't take a shower in it. Don't put it on your skin. Nope. Use it to kill weeds if you're a licensed pesticide applicator, all right? That's precisely the point, too. Yes. You have to have required training. Yes. And it's, you can't buy it over the counter. You can't, this is, it's a very restricted use. That's right. If you go to Home Depot or Lowe's and you say, hey, where's the uh, where's the Paraquat? They'll just look at you funny because they don't know what that is because they don't sell it. That'll be yep. re- that'll be really important to keep in mind. But the, the gist of the story here of, of what Gillum was saying 
is that um, this herbicide has been in use since, I want to say, the 1950s. Um, after glyphosate, it's one of the most widely used weed killers. Um, and the gambit here, which I call the uh, the phony whistleblower gambit, is to say there's a scientist who was at EPA for 40 years. She studied pesticides. Her name's Karen McCormick. And um, she says that everyone she worked with was afraid to speak their minds or they were basically working for uh, the manufacturer that makes <laughs> Paraquat. And so they were just rubber stamping the approvals and the reviews of this chemical over the years. And that's a bad thing because it allegedly causes Parkinson's disease. And again, we'll get into the science. It's totally groundless. But that's that's the setup for this story, Liza, is that they have a well-worn method for scaring people of any chemical, right? You can, any substance, you can place it in here. It's the same thing. Insider tells the, tell, here's the tell-all. I'm the journalist. Someone left secret documents on my doorstep at night. Gary Gillum actually said that, right? There's Which is, that, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So there's the, and, and I mean, if you've seen Aaron Brockovich or the Insider, this is, the, it's always the same story, right? There's secret documents. There's a bad company. There's a journalist. There's a, you know, there's a somebody who, there's an underdog. Wash, rinse, repeat. Over and over, this is how this is how the scare story is sold. Um, and the crazy thing about it is that the underdogs are really the farmers, <laughs> right? Who who are two percent of the population, and they're feeding all of us using really well studied chemicals. And 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 the the role of the EPA is to make sure that the things that are on the market have a safety profile that is acceptable for p the people who are using these products, the farmers, <laughs> right? Yeah. And so it, it's, it's frustrating to hear this because the farmers are really want to make sure that people have a access to a uh, abundant and healthy food supply. Um, and that, that's, that, that story never gets told. Right. Right. So with that in mind, just so people understand the sort of background that we're working in, why don't you explain the science? So the 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 claim is there is abundant, overwhelming, whatever word you want to use, evidence that paraquat causes Parkinson's disease. And the theory is that it's chemically very similar to an impurity that's found in a street drug. There's a synthetic opioid that people make in their garages. Again, a bad idea. Just saying, don't, don't, do, it. don't do that. Um, and and it crosses the the blood brain barrier just like this uh, impurity in the drug does, and then wreaks havoc on wreaks havoc on the cells that produce dopamine, and that is the hallmark of Parkinson's disease is a, is a and, dopamine deficiency. So, explain the chemistry and the toxicology that uh, is way over my head, please. So that's the claim, and that's an allegation, and there's no basis for that claim, other than the molecules look alike. That's it. Mm -hmm. So. That's that's the that's it. But anyway, this is a really fascinating story, and it starts all the way back in 1976, and it's sort of Breaking Bad kind of drama, right? So there was a 23-year-old grad student by the name of Barry Kidston, who, like many other chemists before him, I'm thinking Albert Hoffman synthesizing LSD and saying, oh, I wonder what this does, and dropping it and having, you know, bicycle day in his first day of <laughs> launching the psychedelic movement and lots of people in labs experimenting with things upon themselves. Well, actually, this story actually probably starts way before that. It starts around 1947 when a company was trying to find 
a chemical that would act as an opiate, as a pain reliever, but not have the same addictive properties as other opiates. So they were look, they were doing work on that. And I think, want to say it was uh, Hoffman-LaRoche, maybe, that was, yeah. that was doing the research. Um, and so they published on this chemical, and they said, you know, it was no better than meperidine, which is called pethidine in the EU, um, Demerol, it was the trade name here in the United States. And Demerol and meperidine have uh, a, a, an abuse profile. They're they're addictive. Um, they are, are used for uh, for intractable pain. Um, but anyway, so lots of people use it. Try abused Demerol or Meperidine for for t- euphoria to to get high, not just uh, not just for pain relief. And so this original compound had no benefit over Meperidine, and so it was published in a journal and parked on a shelf <laughs> and sort of went away until 1976 where Barry Kiston decided to synthesize it himself. He was, he was thinking, okay, I um, inter- am interested in uh, making illegal narcotics, uh, illegal opioids that I can use myself. And how do I do that? If I use something that is scheduled, I could go to jail forever. So he went and found this um, and, and, started producing it himself in the lab, right? And injecting it for several months until one day, all of a sudden he injected it and then felt this burning sensation and then became acutely rigid. And he couldn't figure out why. And he was a medical mystery for a lot of the doctors that were looking at it. So he developed what ultimately they realized was a Parkinsonian syndrome. And Parkinson's is extraordinarily unusual in young people. Um, it's, it's a disease of aging. Uh, nobody really has a great idea of what causes it. But so he was a, written up as a case report. Um, and that case report sat on a shelf for several years until 1982, when all of a sudden, four, five, six people showed up in the ER with acute Parkinson's. So they, they were called the frozen addicts. They could not move. They uh, had tremor, a pill rolling tremor, um, very, very uh, flat faces. Just it, it, was, it was extraordinary. And so neurologists came and were evaluating the, this group of people, and they all had one thing in common. They had been shooting up uh, street heroin. And the street heroin was a synthetic um, that was made um, in a clandestine lab, very much like Breaking Bad. Um, and they, when the neurologist went to look up the case report and then went to the original 1947 publication, they found that the publication for how to make this drug was cut out of the journal. And so they realized that somebody had taken the recipe out of the journal and was starting to cook this stuff on their own. And the problem was what they eventually figured out was that this synthetic meperidine was contaminated with, a, if, if you cook it at the wrong temperature and in the wrong pH, it produces a contaminant called MPTP. And MPTP is a fascinating chemical in that once it gets absorbed, it can cross the blood-brain barrier, 
And then it goes through a complex set of reactions. It goes into the neuron, right? And it gets converted in, in, by, by an enzyme into um, MPP. And that's positively charged, so now it can't get out of the neuron. And then it winds up causing oxidative damage to the neuron itself, and it's selective for the neurons that produce dopamine. So dopamine is one of the neurotransmitters, one of the chemicals in your brain that's really important for movement and the smoothness of movement. And the part of your brain that produces it is called the striatum. And normally with Parkinson's, um, the disease is slowly progressive and you won't notice it developing until over 75% of the neurons are gone that produce the dopamine in that part of the brain. This was acute onset cell death because of the oxidative injury that MPTP produced and it winds up uh, causing acute onset Parkinson's. And so as a further issue, most animals don't get any kind of Parkinson's. So up until the discovery of MPTP, it was very difficult to find an animal model to use in the study of Parkinson's. And once they found MPTP, they, they, it is now used routinely um, in labs to develop animal models of Parkinson's so you can actually study the disease. Mm. So that's the breaking bad story behind the the whole outbreak of this. Um, now, once again, they figured out that if you gave dopamine, so it has to be L-dopa because dopamine by itself won't cross the blood-brain barrier. You can't get it across if you inject it. So if they gave L-dopa, these people got better for a while, but eventually they, they, they succumbed. So it was, it was a pretty bad outbreak um, and a very fascinating story. And provided us now with the animal model for Parkinson's disease. So that's the MPTP story. Now, how's it related to paraquat? Well, MPTP and paraquat look alike. They are, they are molecules that uh, have two kind of aromatic groups, round groups with a, with a methyl group on the side. Um, and so people thought that paraquat um, might do the same thing um, mm -hmm. when it when it was uh, when people are exposed to it. The problem is that people are not injecting paraquat, right? And they are not, and unless they're doing suicidal things, they're not generally drinking paraquat. One thing that people do occasionally, which is uh, really really harmful, is they uh, decant. Uh, pesticides into soda bottles or put them in the fridge and things like that. That is Ill illegal, but that's how people also get in inadvertently harmed um, when they when they do that. Um, so so because paraquat looks like MPTP, people became concerned that it would be associated with Parkinson's. But the people who are most exposed to paraquat are once again restricted use of pesticide. Um, applicators. So they've got very good training. They're in uh, PPE. They are, you know, they, and the people who manufacture paraquat. So that those are going to be the people who are most high, highly exposed to it. And there is no association in epidemiologic studies, multiple epidemiologic studies uh, of them coming down with Parkinson's at any higher rate than the general public. The other thing about Parkinson's is people are like, oh, there's an epidemic of Parkinson's 
um, it, you know, there, there, there's more and more people coming down with it. There's got to be an environmental toxin causing it. Well, Parkinson's is also a disease of aging. Remember, we said that very few people under the age of 50 get Parkinson's. Mm-hmm. Um, and so since it's a disease of aging and our population is mm-hmm. aging, you are going to see more Parkinson's anyway. Um, and so the, to date, there is not an etiologic agent established that causes it. Um, causes Parkinson's, um, and uh, the the evidence just is not there scientifically to suggest that paraquat is is uh, the 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 problem. Yeah, well, let's talk a little bit more about the research that's been done because there's some interesting study designs that have I think have conclusively answered this. So you mentioned the bad research, right? So once they saw the chemical similarity <laughs> between these two molecules. They, these poor rodents are just like, you know, like they're injecting them, as you said, with paraquat and not that there's a safe dose because you need so little of it to, to seriously injure or kill yourself, but you're making animals drink this, you're injecting them with it. You're (laughs) just like the cruelest stuff and massive, massive doses. And then when you can reproduce these effects in, uh, in cell culture or in an animal, you go, well, that's, that's pretty good. Right? So some other scientists came along and did much better designed research or they, or they did a review where they look at these, these toxicology studies and they go, this is the, and and it's pretty clear. I was surprised to see this in the journal, but they say, these are just very poorly designed studies. This in no way reflects the real world, right? Because not only do people not use paraquat like drugs, they take excessive precautions, right? I mean, I think the EPA said that if you use uh, protective equipment, it's it's hard to detect that you've been exposed to paraquat. That's how little of it you you get on you or in you or around you mm-hmm. or whatever. If you're an applicator, right? So that's how extensive the protection is. But the the fast most fascinating study design that I found, and I'd love for you to comment on this, is that the manufacturer of the chemical did research where they looked at their own employees that work at the facilities that used to manufacture paraquat, and they said, well, what's their risk of Parkinson's relative to the general population. And this was an important study, and there were a couple of them. It was important because they had really good exposure data because people that work in plants like that, you have biomonitoring data, Mm -hmm. you know how long they were there because they work there, right? They work for you, how long they were there, how long their shifts are, exactly what they're doing. So you have really good exposure data. And when you do a study like that, they found they don't, they don't have an increased risk for Parkinson's. And that's important because they are exposed. I mean, they would have the highest exposure to any compared to anyone in the world, a farmer, a pesticide applicator, especially the general public who the EPA says have virtually no exposure to paraquat because you like most people don't deal with pesticides. You get trace amounts in your food, like, like barely detectable amounts in most cases. So, I, I mean, that settles it. I don't know how anyone could go into the public square, into a courtroom, into a legislature and say, yeah, this is bad. You know, it's, it's, it's like, I want to say this is almost as conclusive as the glyphosate situation. What do you yes, think? Yes, I agree. And it's actually interesting that you say about the trace amounts. So there was a thing in the seventies, it was big campaign to minimize marijuana use in the seventies. And so it, a lot of the, marijuana that was coming into the country, there was a big scare because they had been, it it had been sprayed with paraquat. Um, And so people got very, very concerned that 
marijuana smokers were going to get paraquat poisoning. Well, it turns out that paraquat, the trace amounts that there are that are on plants, if if there is any, um, actually gets pyrolyzed. So when you light it up, it, it's not going to actually right. cause any kind of injury. But that was a big, huge scare in the seventies that it was, that they were that, that marijuana contaminated with paraquat was going to cause a big another big. Uh, a disease outbreak in people who were uh, smoking pot. So that's the uh, trace residue thing. But um, in terms of, yes, I, the, the, this is once again, a very well studied chemical. Um, it's actually very, very important um, in, in um, if you want to have integrated pest management in terms of uh, having weeds that are not resistant to different modes of action. Um, and if you want to have no-till farming, um, this contributes significantly to no-till farming as well um, because you can have a burn down uh, and, and wind up keeping organic matter in the soil and things like that. So I think that, that the studies do not show that there is an association between paraquat exposure and Parkinson's. Um, that, that, that there's not a, not a causal uh, association. There are some very sketchy studies out there that show a possible association. But once again, these are these are not there. There's not a there's not it, it is does not really cross the blood brain barrier. Um, mm -hmm. it's you, you have to, you have to get it in and concentrate it into a certain part of your brain for this to happen. And what happens in suicidal ingestions of paraquat is you get caustic injury right. to the, to the esophagus and the gut. And then you wind up with multi-organ failure because of not only the caustic injury, but the, the site of primary pathology with paraquat poisoning. This is not just, this is not exposure. This is poisoning, right? Mm -hmm. Is the paraquat gets actively pumped into the lungs by a transmitter, like into the alveolar cells of the lungs by a, by a uh, channel, a transmitter that actively pumps it in there. And then it ha goes into this vicious cycle uh, where people like to talk about oxidative injury. And what is that? They bandy that term about what it is, is that you have a molecule with an unpaired electron. And when you've got an unpaired electron, it likes to have a partner. Mm -hmm. And so what it does is it goes and finds uh, an area, which is typically a cell membrane that has electrons and starts pulling off electrons to pair with. And so then that part of the cell membrane goes, hey, I need my, I need my electron back and pulls another electron off from its neighbor. And before you know it, you have this chain reaction where cell membranes get unzipped because they fall apart because they lose this, they, this, their electrons and they wind up spilling their cellular contents and causing a big inflammatory reaction. So you have that component um, where you get that, that leads to massive fibrosis in the lungs. And then you also have interference with the effects of the electron transport chain because you're handing off electrons and so you can't make energy. So yeah. you get a, a big, huge cascade of oxidative injury that depletes your internal um, antioxidant mechanisms for managing this thing. And the more oxygen you give, the more the reaction feeds on itself. So it's mm -hmm. a really, really difficult overdose to manage. Yeah. Um, 
And it, it causes, it, it, in the plants, it causes a similar problem because it causes uh, oxidative injury in photosynthesis one mechanism. Um, so it, it messes up how electrons are, are transmitted and produce energy for uh, plants. And so that's how it kills plants. But um, so, yeah, that's the scientific basis behind um, this. And when you get um, it distributing to tissues, large, it's largely because of caustic injury that and it's getting increasing absorption and then you have ultimate kidney kidney failure so you're not clearing it so it's building up and building up and building up and that's that's the pathophysiology behind the acute toxicity when when it's ingested yeah very important thank you for explaining all that um and let me stress we're not just talking about one or two studies i mean we're talking about like the review i mentioned there were 85 studies you know, yes. so there's a lot of research on this and these are, I mean, some of them are bad, but some of them are really well-designed epidemiological studies like the agricultural health study. Yes. Good one. They've looked at this. They were not able to reproduce um, the increased risk for Parkinson's in, in farmers. And that is a separate, that's not a company study. That's not a, no. you know, that's, those are, it, the ag health study is an independent study by the government. Yeah, it's a na National Cancer Institute, if I'm not mistaken, right? So that's as, as official as official gets. <laughs> um, and another interesting aspect to this, and uh, I'll happily talk about this, is that, you know, like like the whole the whole shtick here that Gillum goes into is like these scientists are afraid to talk about what they really think about these pesticides. And of course, how does she know that? Well, see, there's this EPA scientist, and she talked to an international media outlet about how scared she is to share her opinion, right? That, like there's inherently a level of silliness here that I, I want people to appreciate <laughs> is that is that this woman went and talked to um I forget forget it. It was an international outlet, it'll come to me in a second. And then writing for The Guardian, which is another giant news outlet, which is you know hardly objective news these days. But in any case, The Guardian's a huge paper, right? So it's like Here's this massive media blitz about how this woman is frightened and she's scared and she won't talk about the realities, you know. But then when you dive into the science, as we've done here over the last 20 minutes or so, she's wrong. She's either she's either horrible at her job and she shouldn't have been at EPA or she's being dishonest. Those are the only two options here. It's just there's no other way around it. I don't I don't, I don't see any other explanation of what's going on here. I feel really sorry for EPA scientists because they are stuck in the middle. First of all, they have to, they are, they are held to a standard that is unparalleled in the world, right? They are told that they have to, you know, develop a whole regulatory mechanism, which is, has been thoroughly researched and thoroughly put in place over decades, right? That, and they go through mountains and mountains and mountains of boring studies to establish whether something is safe as when used as directed, right? And then they go and they pr present their data and you, then you have activists trying to uh, regulate through litigation or yeah. activists trying to regulate through legislation using one study versus the thousands and thousands and thousands that regulatory scientists have to evaluate to determine whether or not things are safe. Um, and it really is undermines the ability of regulatory agencies to be one nimble, to uh, abide to, by what they find in, in the actual science rather than popular opinion. Um, and it, it 
actually is a disincentive for good people to go want to work in regulatory agencies because they are routinely uh, accused of uh, malfeasance in some capacity or another or, or capture. So I would be very afraid of a system where one paper written by a non-expert, like say like Chuck Benbrook writing about chemicals when he's an agricultural economist, right? When, when one paper written by a non-expert in a field that doesn't do any actual testing himself um, gets to shape all of agricultural policy for a country, that's mm. that should that should be terrifying, right? Yeah, you know the court that we have had five scientific advances in the 20th century, which brought us a 30-year increase in life expectancy. Those are vaccination water sanitation, antibiotics, vector control, and food security. Mm -hmm. And I'm watching the House of Medicine dismantle these things. And it's very concerning to me because we have such an abundance of clean, healthy, wholesome food that's never happened before in, in, in the history of mankind. Mm -hmm. And I'm watching this paranoia build by people with, um, with agendas. Uh, and motivations. And those people with agendas and motivations are making accusations about good scientists who really are working to try to protect the public and trying to protect public health. Here's a related aspect that's most fascinating to me. So the whole, the whole foundation for this scheme is that there's these secret documents that you have chemical manufacturers behind closed doors saying, we know our products allegedly, right? We know our products are dangerous. How do we hide this from the public? That's the whole storyline that Carrie Gillum and these other people want you to believe. When you go and read these documents, and I encourage you to do this. If you're having trouble sleeping, go do this, right? They put all the documents <laughs> online. They're boring. They're like, it's like corporate meeting um, minutes and emails and memos. It's just boring. It's like internal dialogue or internal conversations from from big companies. So a lot of it's boring. A lot of it's irrelevant. And when you read the things that are supposed to be damning, you read them in context and you see there's nothing happening out of sorts, right? That, like That's this right. is a, this is a big bluff. They are betting that the people who are reading these stories in the guardian are not going to go do this research. That's right. And they're betting that when it comes to a trial or it comes to, you know, policymaking that the politicians are just going to take their word for it. And unfortunately, that's a, that's a pretty reliable or a pretty safe bet because it happens a lot. And they will take a sentence made in a in a email or in a conversation completely out of context. Yeah. And then they will present that one sentence out of tens of thousands of documents, one sentence in front of a jury, and that's that's really unfortunate yeah. because it, it 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 shapes the way people think about this, and it, it's it's really really unfortunate. You know, I wonder how open society would, which funds a lot of these articles, would react to a similar request. Would, you know, would they be open with their emails? Um, would they share their emails uh, about what, what they're funding and why? Mm -hmm. You know, it's fascinating that you bring that up. Our, our mutual friend, David Zarek, wrote a, a recent story uh, about the funding to The Guardian and once that story went up and got traction online, they took the Guardian took down their supporters page and they buried it in their website. So it's much harder to find now. 
So that's, I mean, this is the level of hypocrisy um, that's going on here, right? So they're going to stand on this moral perch and they're going to preen and talk about, you know, we're, we're objective journalists and we're telling the truth and we're exposing the bad guys. Oh, you want to know where our money comes from? Dude, don't worry about that. Just, just fine. It's all fine. Right. Yeah. I, I, I mean, it's, it's the same thing. The, the allegation is that companies influence because the companies have money. Well, there are lots of other organizations that have agendas too, that are doing a lot of influencing. And so I'd be very curious to know if they'd be willing since they are open society, if they'd be willing to share their uh, stuff with us. Yeah. Open just means whatever we want. That's what an open society is, is what we want. That's all. Um, the reason I brought up the documents thing, though, is because you said these scientists at EPA are trying to do their jobs. They're working under impossible standards sometimes. Um, one of the things you come across in one of these documents that I looked at for this story, one of the these secret, you know, Gillum calls them the Paraquat papers. Like, whoa, not the, <laughs> not the Paraquat papers. So I looked at one of these memos from like 40 years ago. And the company, it's, 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 I, it's, I want to say it's their lawyers and someone who works in PR or something, but they're having this, they're recounting a meeting they had and it's about the label on Paraquat. And they're saying, you know, most of the poisonings are accidental or they're misuse. And again, as we've just covered, that's correct. 40 years later, the science shows that when people are injured by this chemical, it's because they drink it or they don't follow the rules. Okay, so that's what they're talking about behind closed doors. And they are also saying the EPA responds to political pressure and emotional rhetoric. And the reason they're saying that is because the federal agencies are staffed or run by political appointees. So like the like the chief of these agencies are appointed by the president. And then that person gets to pick whoever works around them. Right. So at the very top, you have political appointees who are very, very susceptible to political influence. And you don't have to take my word for it. There was a survey of EPA employees done in 2021. One of their biggest complaints about their job is that they are they are often overridden by people above them who are responding to politics. Same thing happens in the FDA. There was a big mm -hmm. uh, investigation into FDA uh, last year. It took a couple of years, but it was published late last year. And you had a lot of scientists over there saying, I'm a toxicologist. My boss has a totally different expertise, but he is overriding my judgment. He's not letting me do my job. Mm -hmm. So all that to say, there is a lot of political pressure, but it's not the kind of pressure that, that people like Gillen will lead you to believe. It's not that the companies like bust into EPA's headquarters and they're like, we're in charge now. Like doesn't work that way. Right. There no. is a lot of political influence, but it goes in the other direction in many cases. Likewise. Yeah. But likewise, there are also lifetime unelected political operatives in many of these departments because if you switch something every four years, you get no consistency, mm -hmm. right? So staffers in positions that they're in or scientists that are in positions that they're in, the science is not changing in these, in these things. It's the tone of whomever is getting overlaid. It's the, it, it, it has to do more with the bureaucracy. And once again, it's really unfortunate that things like this get politicized because depending on who's in office, you go back and forth as to whether or not you can use something um, according to the label. You know, it, it, the, yeah. the, the rules change so quickly that it's very hard for um, companies who to, to ad adapt and keep up 
uh, with, you know, these constant changes. And so if you want to be able to have access to really important chemistries that make your life better, um, there needs to be some consistency. Um, and that's why that's where, you know, the regulatory agencies like EPA are, are this lo the long-term scientists who are really understand the scientists, the science in, in depth are a critical component to have uh, trust in because they're not there to, they, they aren't there to do the bidding of industry. They're not there to do the bidding of the government. What they are there to, to do is make sure that the public is safe. Yeah, it's, it's very important. And if, the reason that's particularly frustrating to me is that uh, you'll see from administration to administration, you'll see different decisions or determinations come out of federal agencies. So, you know, you'll have one administration say, uh, we're going to leave this product on the market because we, we are reasonably confident it poses minimal risk to public health. Here's all the evidence. Here's how we came to this, that conclusion. The next administration takes office and then their EPA says, we contradict the last EPA because of this research. And then when you go look at the research, the previous EPA said, well, that's bad research. That's why we didn't rely on it, right? So you see this kind of turnover happening. And I can only imagine working in a place where this is going on because <laughs> like, like there are a lot of career people there, as you said, but it's not really up to them, you know? So right. like if the order comes down, this is what we're going to do. Well, you're like, well, <laughs> you know? Yes. So, so in other words, there is some truth to the idea that political corruption and, and pressure and so forth are real in the federal government, obviously. But I think the story that's being told to the public is like, it's this monolithic institution. Yep. If you just slip an envelope full of cash to one of these people at EPA, you can run the whole place. It's like, that it's is so, not true. It's just so <laughs> silly. The final thing I'll add before we go. And then if Liza, if you have anything to add, then please do. But like, like when you have real whistleblowers within the government, and I'm not going to get political, but if there's someone who works in the government who comes forth and says, the government is spying on you, and they're lying to your face about it, you know, someone who does that is very brave, and they're putting they're putting not only their career at risk, but their their safety, you know, and that's mm -hmm. why a lot of people who who like like back in the Soviet Union to give an example, no one can criticize me for, right? You would have people in the KGB who would leak information to the U.S. government, and then they would leave. They'd take their families yeah. and go because they didn't want to end up in a in a prison somewhere, right, or have their heads chopped off or whatever, you know? Exactly. So all that I'm saying is those people are brave. They do a valuable public service by getting information out that people need to know about. But what people like Gillum and McCormick and some of these other goofballs that we talk about do is they abuse that, right? They're trying to use all of the trappings of that, of the whistleblower thing, to push a scam. That's very harmful and costs billions of dollars, like billions of dollars of economic productivity and people's lives and jobs. And taxpayer just, dollars. Right. And taxpayer just, dollars because you have to reevaluate things over and right. over and over again. Yeah. Right. Just money flushed down the toilet to enrich lawyers and to enrich the people that help lawyers file lawsuits. And of course, as we've been talking about, um, that threatens your food security. That threatens your safety because you can't kill bugs and you can't kill infectious organisms. And you, right? I mean, pesticides are invaluable, and you do not want to live without them. I promise you that. I don't know if if how else we can say that. You know, they are critical for public health. And it's funny um, when you look at you know 
stuff that's happened in the past, litigation over breast implants, um, litigation over baby powder, all of that kind of stuff. That's, you know, if so if baby powder went away and it, it does not cause cancer, by the way, J&J no. is absolutely right. It does not cause cancer. It's science-free litigation. But if baby powder went away, that wouldn't be a big, huge deal, right? Food security, on the other hand, and vector control, on the other hand, mm-hmm. are enormously important. And that is outside the purview of any single company or companies in general. It is, this is so profoundly important. People think that agriculture is boring. It's sort of behind the scenes, everything, but, but it, it is the basis of civilization. And I am watching people with agendas dismantle these unbelievable scientific advances that we've had that grant us incredible food security. So it's way bigger than any company. It's way bigger than any regulatory agency. It is so, so important that we make good policy decisions around food. Mm -hmm. And that would be my takeaway. Please look at the science and please understand that, that, that where the truth lies with this, because our societies really depend on it. Yes. One final thing. Um, I keep thinking of things to say. We've seen what happens because these people get their way occasionally in uh, sub-Saharan Africa or in uh, Sri Lanka or one of these countries. The government is dumb enough to follow their advice. People go hungry. They get sick. They fall back into poverty by the millions. And when the results come up and everyone goes, what's that? Or big organic, like, why didn't your advice work? They go, whoa, 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 it's not our fault. You should have done it over 10 years. It's like, well, it's funny. You didn't tell them that before everything went wrong, right? So real world evidence, you will suffer if you follow these people and they don't care about you. That's right. This is insanity. So anyways, all right. Have a lovely week, everyone. (laughs) (laughs) We'll be back next week for 249. Until then, follow us on Twitter, X, whatever you want to call it at Dr. Liza MD, at Cam J English. Genetic Literacy Project is at Genetic Literacy. Follow them, read their content, because they make this all possible for us. So with that, see you Excellent. next time. See you next time. Bye.